Welcome to the Performance Rising Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Dunn. And today I get to talk with a very good friend of mine, colleague, and someone that I respect a great deal, Katerina Schmidt. Katerina is many things of which I will have her uh, illuminate for you. But most importantly to me, she's a member of my doctoral program cohort. She is a great support and a friend. Um, and she also happens to be an internationally, an internationally known executive coach. So with that glorious introduction, Katerina, why don't you introduce yourself? <laughs> All right. So um, next to an executive coach, I, I am a human being and I'm the mother of two wonderful boys, 10 and 11, and a wife to an amazing man. And I've, um, I, and I, I would say my profession and in line with my passion is to help people discover themselves and, and live uh, lives that are even truer to themselves than they could have imagined and, and discover potential and manifest that potential. And I, I love to do that one-on-one. -on -one. I love to do that one-on-more. -on -more. I love to do that in front of bigger groups. Um, it just, I, one of the, big discoveries in my life and, and maybe you're gonna laugh about that but is that every human being is different thinks different likes different things interprets the same different the same situation differently and i that i find so fascinating and sometimes also tiring <laughs> <laughs> of course of course um katarina you have lived a pretty um remarkable life. Uh, you have a very diverse background and I don't want to uh, skip any of the details. So um, as much as you want to share, kind of fill in the listener to how you got to this point right now. Wow, that's a big question. Um, the, the shortest answer is by leading and by following. Um, and, and it's interesting, since I moved to the United States, I have a new identity. I realized that, and I realized it mainly in, the, in our, um, our doctoral context. I, have, I got an extra identity. It's the identity of European. Yes. I mean, I lived in Holland. I, lived in, I, I am originally from Germany. I lived in Holland for half, more than half of my life. My husband is Dutch. I identify as much with being German as with being Dutch. And it's not for nothing that I choose to stay in Amsterdam when I studied there. Um, but in, in, in America, all of that is European. And it's like this one, and it, it, apparently it's special to be European or have a European perspective. I sometimes consider, or I sometimes feel that I am considered the exotic European in our cohort, which is really funny. Um, and what, yeah, so the question was what brought me where I am. So I believe in the universe. I think, I think if we, if I, I have got, I've, I've been very lucky in many things and, and maybe some people 
uh, would call that hard work and dedication, but I, I never had a super cutout plan what I wanted to be. I, I know one thing that what I do, I want to love what I do and I want to do it extremely well. So I have very high standards of what I consider good enough, especially for myself. So and it doesn't matter if I cut the, the peppers or the, the onions, I want to do that well. And I want to coach an individual well. And if I have a role to play in an organization, I want to really play that role well and, and better every day. And that brought me to, I, I used to be, um, you, you know that, a professional volleyball player. I played a few seasons in Spain and, and Germany and Holland, of course. And then I started working and, and it just, it brought me in six different countries, amazing companies where I got so many opportunities. And I mean, maybe we're going to come to that, to the gender thing. I just because I was a woman, I think I got many opportunities. Well, that's a lot to unpack. Um, and I wouldn't expect anything less. And I hope the listener can grasp even at this early stage, how remarkable and complex Katerina is. I will now refer to you only as Kat. Katerina sounds odd for me to say. Um, what I find in these conversations is I like to start with childhood in a way, because I think that's where we first grasp the concepts of a cultural architecture. And knowing you as I do, you have a very unique childhood cultural story. And if you're willing to share that, um, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about what that was, what that community was like and that experience for you. Of course, you know me. I, I'm not afraid to dance naked on the table. Um, it, I grew up in a commune. And it, I think it was depending, like it, it would vary between 12 and 16 members, three, four, five families. And everybody in the commune, every individual, especially the grown-ups, had a task. So one person, my mother was responsible for cooking. My father, I think, was responsible for the administration. One person was responsible for the laundry. And we would have dinner together and do everything together. And there was a whole, there was a very progressive and left-wing um, school of thought behind it. It was socialist, even communist. They were looking for uh, changing the world. Money was almost a dirty concept. It was the capitalist. And that, that was considered negative. And, and, and it was there, like there was a lot of equality in the system as kids we would have a voice. People would read like the, the Stern or the Spiegel to us, which is the, the I don't know, the Times or the Economist to us, even though we wouldn't understand a word, of course. Um, and, and we had a voice. And I think, and it's something that I've been realizing over the last years as we become more aware of, of what, what are our values and, and where does our own leadership come from? And our own culture, where does it come from? I mean, this is, this is big time culture. I, for me, equality is a very important value and, and, and allowing everyone to have a voice without disregarding that there is power in every relationship. I mean, there's power between us at this moment. 
there is there is power is ever present and and i wouldn't i mean i don't deny power and i i know for example that if i choose to i can go in a very powerful mode and still that equality maybe egalitarian i don't really know how to to call it all but but that idea of everybody has a voice and everybody should have a voice and everybody should develop their voice that it 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 resonates and i would say everything i do and i love sense making and we're doing it right now and i i really would like to drill a little bit further down to the commune so what I heard is how that communal structure, which was based on egalitarian principles, very different from the quote unquote stereotypical nuclear family. How did you make sense of that environment? What was that environment to you as a child? So it's, you know, it's like the fish in the water that doesn't know that he or she's swimming in the water. We didn't know any better. There were a few other kids, um, and, and we, we didn't know this was different. So when I started to understand that I was different and I became, of course, I became totally ashamed of it. I was like, Ooh, I'm going to hide this. Um, was when I, I got into puberty. I would say it was somewhere between 12 and 14 when I started to have friends who I visited at home and who had the nucleus family, who had a house, two children, a father and mother still together. My parents divorced in that commune time. And, and everybody divorced in that time because every, like, there was no such thing as faith. I mean, it was normal to exchange partners and it was normal to smoke marijuana and to, to uh, discuss the meaning of life uh, until very late at night. Um, so I, I would say, I mean, it, it definitely influenced my culture and the culture that I'm bringing into the world. And also what I live with, with my children and with my clients and with my husband, but I, I didn't make a lot of sense at it at that moment. I, I'm, I started to understand, oops, I'm different and, and be ashamed of it. Like very classical pattern, I would say in in puberty and and that took a long it took a long while until took years 10 years until i started to own i was raised in a commune um everybody did it with everybody it was it was a little bit chaotic it was not at all clear who belonged to whom and 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 roles were switching back and forth and and i it really took me even I mean, maybe 20 years to understand how it has influenced my, my need for autonomy, my, my belief in everybody has a voice and everybody should, um, should find that voice. What was power in the commune? So I, I mean, again, power, power is everywhere. And I, I know a few things where, for example, my mom especially when she, she um, was divorced and alone, she felt less power and I think she felt vulnerable. But I would say it, 
I, I mean, I, I don't know if I have an issue with authority, but I, for me, authority has to be earned. And it's not because you have a certain position that I will do what, uh, what you tell me. And I think that was also born in the commune. And, and also the whole male, female thing, all women in that commune worked. Everybody worked and everybody had a contribution. And there was no, like there were no, no traditional role patterns that I learned. So for me, when I, I, I found, like it took me a year to own that. Um, when I uh, left Holland and I left my network behind and I really started to work a lot less and, and, and I could have said, I'm a stay home mom. I was never totally, but I mean, it took me, it took me a long time to own that, that I'm not equal, equally financially contributing to our family anymore. Um, that, that was when we moved. Mm -hmm. So parent, and, and the fact that I struggled so much with that told me that apparently that for me is an important value. Yeah. And, it, and again, for someone who hasn't been in a commune, it's just so foreign to me, right? Like I have a caricature of it. I've seen videos or documentaries and that's why it's fascinating to me. And I want to <laughs> go and think about control then. So if, if power wasn't something you felt, then what was control? Because there must've been some mechanisms, like there aren't any groups yes. that shape the way people think and is a agent of conformity. Yeah. Interesting. So, I mean, I was, it was, I was there until I was six, seven. Um, and, and I, all I, but I, so my hunch is that there was one family, not my parents who were leading in the commune and especially the guy. No, but I, th I would say she was leading as well. And I would say if I had to point out to someone who pulled the strings and who had the most power and who would organize or address things and also pretty fearlessly, I think that it's something, it's interesting now that we talk about it, I'm, I can be, I can be pretty direct. And I think for American standards, sometimes I'm, I'm frighteningly direct. Um, I would say there was one family that, that played that coordinating role and that would address issues and that would distribute the roles that people held. But then it, there was a lot of self-organization, which is, which is again, something that I so believe in. Like it, it's part of that, you know, everybody has a responsibility. Let's take it and let's distribute it well. Let's be very, very clear and also demanding in terms of the standards. And, but then, then the system should self-organize. So I love self-organization. And I know there's an element of chaos that, that some people, when I do that in my workshops, I say, okay, I'm going to leave coupling up or making triangles. I'm going to leave this to the principles of self-organization. And some people are like, Oh, what, what, how, how's that going? And I believe we all, it's good for all of us to acknowledge the uncertainty that comes with that and, and be embrace it and lean into it. I want to just acknowledge how powerful it is that you can make such direct connections back to the germination of these thoughts that you are, I mean, I'm really feeling your, your passion as I always do, but for the listener, I hope you feel her passion um, for introspection and really being able to make these connections. Um, I, I won't beat the drum too hard, but I do want to know again about this community 
what behaviors were praised? Do you remember being praised for certain behaviors? Oh, man. Oh. So it's, it's definitely not, shh, Katarina, don't be so loud. I was very loud. I was very unadapted. I'm still, I can be very loud and, and unadapted, which by the way, I, I would say between 15 and 30, I, I bounced back extremely and became very adapted and looked very much what is expected to me of, of me in which context. Um, but at that, in the beginning, we were all loud. We would dress up, disguise, run around naked, uh, play loud games, play with big mattresses in the... So I also went to a kindergarten that had been set up by that same group and, and an even bigger group. And, and we were allowed to run around and shout and play wild games. And so that I, and the question was, what did I get praise for? I think that was more, I can't remember. I can't remember. But I, in your own way, I mean, even I can glean from that, that, you know, things like individuality, um, autonomy, um, ownership of one's reality, even if it's not explicit, the fact that, you know, we can make some cultural connections here to say, certainly there are cultures, stereotypically, of course, I'm speaking, that we, we feel that people, even women, are not given a platform to have a voice. Um, that's not the case for you. No. Um, then, so I think, it, like, I like the fish in the water metaphor. Because it was so normal, it wasn't even a thought. And again, as you've pointed out, you didn't have a perspective until you left that community. What then, what about behaviors that were criticized? Do you have any idea or remembrance of actions that, or even in the community, things that were criticized. Hmm, yeah, you, you know what my silence means. I'm thinking, hmm, I, I can't remember. I would, so my hunch is there was a lot of freedom. And there was not a lot of praise and there was not a lot of criticism or, or boundary setting. Mm -hmm. Except for, you know, when, when my mom had a bad day and, and would, would yell at me because, or whatever, I, I was annoying her in some way. I, I mean, I remember that from, from later, but not from those first years. There was a lot of freedom. And I remember quite some, some one-on-one -on -one time with my dad, silent one-on-one -on -one time, like where we would read or walk or I go on my go-kart and, and he would walk or run with me, stuff like that. Did you have, um, was your relationship to your parents like the familial bond or did you have like familial relationships to other members of the community? So again, I'm coming from a very, I'm coming from my framework, right? Which is to say, here's mom, here's dad. And even though I came from a divorced family, but you know, I had that kind of that familial sense. 
is it the same in your experience that you said, you know, like these are my, this is my family or was it more universal that we are all family? So my, I would say my mom and my dad were the first people, but there were a ton of people right behind them or right next to them even. Like, yeah, there so were everyone more. took a role. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. everybody, everybody was close and would play with us and would, would give us food when we need it or like would take responsibility. Yeah. Okay. So you, you said six, seven, your parents divorce. Yeah. And, and that's the same time you left. We left the commune. Yeah. And we, we, which was very, and like, it wasn't expected, but my mom bought a house together with one other family who also had a girl at my age, in my age. Um, and we would, I would, until I left the house, we would live in that house together, but with different units. So we had one apartment and um, the other family had another, the apartment on top. Was that an attempt to hold on to the communal sense? Was it convenience? Was it what? I think their idea was to go, to continue the community, but then, I also think, which is interesting, they needed a little bit more autonomy within the family unit. So, mm -hmm. so the nucleus, and you know, I live the nucleus fully with my kids and, and my husband. I mean, it's father, mother, two children, a house. It's, mm -hmm. and we, we are very, very preservative of our vacation time together. We really like make very conscious choices when we go on weekends with other people. It, it, needs to add value otherwise we like to be in our little nucleus so it's it there is something natural apparently to the nucleus the person mm -hmm. that you make your kids with and and then i mean i think half of the half half of parents get a divorce at some point so there's also some something natural in in not keeping it together i think i wanted to to do the commune thing keep on living in one house but with a bit more autonomy and my parents in the initially wanted they wanted to buy the house together with the other family but then they in the beginning they separated on a temporary basis and then boom all of a sudden it was it was fixed and my dad lived around the corner from our house until i was 11 or so and it, it, they didn't have it wasn't traumatic it was mm -hmm. it was again everybody had a voice there was no money exchange. My mom took care of herself and me. My dad took care of himself and me. It, it was like, it was egalitarian, equality, the, it, it, the same principle. And this was Germany, correct? Germany, yeah. Yeah. So now you're in, um, quote unquote, mainstream society. And I loved how you articulated the consciousness of difference. I want to dig into that a little bit. How did you make sense of being different? What did that feel like? When did you know you were and how were you different from this uh, society at large? Well, so the, I would say the big trigger was my father met his new wife with, she's, he's still married with her and he had um, three more children with her, which I have a great relationship with. And that wife did not really approve of me. Um, I, my, my clothes weren't right because all my clothes had like funny colors because everything was washed together and nothing was ever ironed. She, um, she criticized really 
very explicitly my manners. I, and I, you know, I didn't have manners because nobody taught me manners. Right. I didn't know how to eat with knife and fork. I didn't, I didn't know how to control my voice. I didn't know that in certain public spaces you shouldn't speak that loud. And it, you know, nobody ever taught me. So funny to, to, to look at that. And so that was when I was eight, nine, I started to be there more regularly. And that was the beginning. And it wasn't shame by then. It was more like, I would say, incomprehension and, and not understanding what was going on. Like the, the fact that I was, um, I was unaccepted or even pushed back by her. I think that was, that was painful, but mm -hmm. subconsciously I couldn't make any sense of it when I was eight or nine. And, and you know, I, I, I can talk about it now because I, I have forgiven. And I've also seen that archetypically there is something really, really challenging when someone and you, I mean, you are in that same position. You, you meet, you, have a child with someone, you meet a new person and that child is still the symbol of that previous relationship. And it takes some values and some reflection and some, some guts and some courage to deal with that well at all times. And I, maybe it's even impossible to do that always well, but, but so um, she, she really disapproved of my behavior and my clothes and, and my hair I mean, I, I don't even, we don't have to talk, but that was the first big trigger. Mm -hmm. And then I started, when I started middle school in Germany, you do that around 12. I, so I, I really moved out of that commune scene with, there were like, it's, it's a new school and it was, and we, we had lots of kids who came a little bit from the, um, the surroundings of the city that I lived in and, and it was a typical suburban lifestyle with a beautiful house, a garden, father, mother, two kids, a little bit what we're doing now. <laughs> and, and I was like, I loved the rhythm. And I loved the moms who were home and who took care of the kids and who made cookies and you don't, you don't get cognitive cookies and milk, but it's a little bit of that image. When you come home from school, there is someone. I was always alone. I always ate my lunch alone. I ate cornflakes. I ate uh, like the, the ready-made baby mm -hmm. kind of powder with milk. I just did my own stuff. And, um, and, and then I started to, and maybe it's a, it's not even, but it, it's puberty that hits in. But I just became very aware of myself. And like, okay, how am I supposed to dress? How am I supposed to behave? And of course, I mean, the stuff that you learn in your first six years, it's pretty dominant and, and you can't always suppress it. But I definitely, I worked on adaptation. So from being incredibly authentic, maybe too authentic, too loud, unadapted, not having manners, I became the perfect, the perfect girlfriend. Yeah. And I, I, I became, I would say, very sensitive to what is expected of me in which context. That's actually my next question, which is how does that affect self-esteem in the, in the sense of self-worth? Because you are living a life of constant differentness. Oh, I, I would say in, in that period, I was, there was a 
a deep insecurity. Mm-hmm. And it started around, I mean, it started with the new wife, my father's new wife. And then it, it went on with puberty and, and becoming more aware and, and, and working on that, on that mask. And, you know, I'm, it, I think we all have masks, but I, I definitely, I became masterful at switching masks. And I'm, it's still a part of who I am, what is needed, mm-hmm. in which context, what is needed here to be successful, what aspects do I need to give special attention to. And then if I have to become green, I still can become green. If I have to become yellow, I can become yellow. And I mean, I'm, I'm approaching 50, so I, over the last, I would say, 15 years, 10 years, I I got a, a wonderful portion of going back to my own center. And if becoming green is not a good thing for me, then, you know, I don't do it anymore. But it was definitely, a, it was a pendulum that moved from highly authentic and free and autonomous, like unaware of that that wouldn't fit every context to being hyper aware of what would, what is needed in which context and, and bringing that towards yeah. now, I would say I'm good in the middle and sometimes I switch a little bit towards there and, and, and there's a good balance. I, I call it the paradox of authenticity versus adaptation. I love that so much. <laughs> Before we jump forward, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking how, I guess the word is incredible. I'm thinking of your, you know, your childhood and on, on one, literally on one corner, you have a mother who moved in with members of the community seemingly or ostensibly to continue the tenets philosophies, even in a lighter mode of that community. And around the corner, you have a father from that community who married you know, a non-community member who then, you know, was critical of you. Was, wh- where was your dad in that? Uh, was he trying to preserve the, you know, the commune or, or how did he, because what I'm really sensing is for your stepmother to have that platform means your father had to, quote unquote, give it. So what, what was it about him walking away from rescinding his communal values that allowed for that to happen? Does that make sense? It does. It's almost, this is almost like therapy, Matthew. So it, it's interesting. And, you know, my father's second wife, she was not only not from the community, she was very traditional. She is very, she's extremely rigid and traditional and conservative in her, in her German housewife values. I mean, she, she worked, she was independent and she definitely lived that, but but she was the opposite of the commune. Mm -hmm. So I, I like, I, I would, it's almost short circuiting if you, if you look at it and, and a part of me really was like, Oh, I love that. The, the, it was always clean in our place. It was rarely clean and it was always messy and, and there were no fixed dinner times. And when I was hungry at six, I mean, I already had my own lunch. Then I would eat chocolate or whatever I would find. And I loved the rhythm. So it, it was, and I'm going to come to my dad role. It's, I, I mean, yeah, it was short circuit. It was two completely different worlds. Also my mom, 
she never had a second partner and she just she had to discover herself and she really needed a lot of space and and there was i think she did really well and she in a byproduct was that i had to become independent very early on and and that made me that made me probably be autonomous and free and very resourceful person that i am even though i also suffered and i i felt alone and and I also sometimes felt afraid when I was alone at home. And it's something that I, I definitely, that influences how I deal with my sons. I'm trying to find a good balance between um, protecting and, and being there and giving space and giving autonomy. So my dad, I would say he suffered silently and he gave his new wife, the platform, because, and you know, you know that you have a new loyalty, uh, but you have your old loyalty to your, to your daughter as well. And, and somehow you're torn, you're torn between the loyalties. And I was a child, so I couldn't, I could probably not explicit well enough what was going on for me. And, and my father's wife, my father has a tendency to choose dominant, loud, um, steering, maybe leading women. And then he has a tendency to follow. So he gave her the platform. And sometimes he would put a boundary to it, but that, that would always come with conflict in the system. Always paired up with like, ooh, then there was, you could feel the tension in the air. So thank you for sharing all that. Um, You're welcome. This is great. I, I now want to go into education. So what was school to you as a child, as a young person? What was education? It was a given. It, it, again, it was like a fish in the water. And... Um, I, it was this... It was the first, it was a system that gave me structure and that also triggered. So there is this, and I, I don't have a clue where that comes from because it's not like you can't, I don't have good hypotheses how that would come from the commune or not, but I have this perfectionist inside of myself. I want to do what I do well. And, um, and in school, school was a great system for me because I could, I could show and prove and, and perform well in in the setting that was given and i i mean i love i love that whole thinking about school and and social mobility i mean not that i would have experienced it that way at that time but but definitely my educations have been the key to me for me to to advance in, in many, many ways. And, and even though I'm never, I'm not like I did an MBA and I usually, I, I mainly did it at Kellogg because my husband wanted to do an MBA. And he kept pushing me and I said, no, I'm, I don't need that check in the box. And then at a certain point, I don't know what, what, what it was. I said, okay, let's do it. And so we paid a bunch of money and, and we studied our butts off for two years. And I, I handed in my thesis two days before my first son was born and I was totally done with it. And I still, I, I mean, of course I learned stuff and I, I love to put my mind 
to learning and reading and synthesizing and, and doing cases. But I can never really say, yeah, I learned a lot from that. Mm-hmm. But of course I did, but I, I couldn't say what. But it checks in the boxes definitely helped me with certain jobs and, and advancing and progressing and other people who would value a lot that my MBA was from Calac and then boom, I, I got a certain job. And, um, and, and also now I think it, I mean, it, it's, it's more than a tick in the box, but, but the fact that I have an MBA and that, that I have worked in organizations and that I have been like one, one day, one of my clients said, have you ever been in my position? And I said, yes, I did. It was a CEO. And I said, yes, I've, I've been in your position. Um, and I, I know how hard it is. So it, it just enables me to have this breadth of, of, of background that sometimes comes in handy. And I love to learn. I'm a learner. I love to learn. And I don't really mind if it's, if it's in a formal setting or if it's in an interview like with you. I don't know if it's, good, it's, a, if it's the right answer to your question, what education did for me. But it, it definitely it, it inspired me. So in line with trying to make sense of this culture idea, as you just said, education always made sense to you. So there was never a, so schools are cultures and communities with their own rules, power dynamics, control, but that never, I'm not going to say bothered you, but that all made sense. You navigated that well. You were a high functioning student. So you played the role of student. You didn't have a, you know, yes, socially, I'm sure you had her, as you said, you had hurdles with um, adapting to a new society, but, but education was, I guess it wasn't an issue for you. you. You did it, you did it well, that's that. So take me to the point where you, and I, you'll have to help me with cultural translations, but graduate from high school? Yeah. Um, now, are you playing volleyball at this point? Yeah. And what was sport to you? at that point in your life? What was it that led you in and what did it give you? It's again, the fish in the water. It was just, it was my oxygen. And, and, but not, not that I would, because there comes the praise again. Nobody would ever tell me, or you're, you're great or keep doing, or nobody would ever push me. Nobody would push me to be good at school, to do my homework, to prep for a test it was all self steer. My mother would never, she wouldn't, she wouldn't know what I was up to that. I had a test. Same volleyball. It was my own thing. I organized it and, and it was kind of like a kind of a given. Um, and I really loved, I loved that lovely game. And, and I still can think of, you know, that first, receiving and and then a good set and boom it's just beautiful yeah that's a connection that uh that we have Uh, my parents also didn't push me so uh, you know i think about this in relationship to my daughter and and my son now which is so much of the american ethos is this early performance early success uh which fundamentally neurologically educationally does not make sense but it's there. And yet I I would consider myself to be extremely passionate about the things I do. Certainly soccer was one of them. Education was another. And I never had, no one pushed me. In fact, I I think of this 
I must have been in high school. At that point, my father had watched, give me a number, hours of soccer. And he said to me, what's the offside rule? And I looked at that and I was like, what, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, how brilliant, how brilliant is that? Like, that is actually a beautiful testament to a parent enjoying watching their child for the right reasons. Like, okay, the game's the game. I don't really care. I'm watching my child and supporting him or her. So it's a fascinating connection between the two of us. Um, you, so taking that forward, you leave high school. It, do you then go play pro or are you going where? I, I am going, I have applied apply to different, and I, you know, I didn't know what I wanted because nobody had ever talked. I didn't have an idea. My parents were both teachers. I didn't have a clue. So I just thought, you know what, I let, let me do some business administration or economics because it's broad. I can do anything. I can walk around with my sweet suit and, uh, and high, whatever. I don't know. And I, I knew that I was good at languages. I had spent half a year in France during my, when I was 17. And I went, I spent some time in the UK to improve my English and I had, had Spanish at school and it all like, it all s stuck really well. And you speak so five I, languages. I do. Yes. <laughs> and that, that again is something that in this country is so, so highly regarded, which is nice. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I started international management and I went to a different city, city, moved out and it was a program where I would study two years in Germany and two years either in France, the UK or Holland. And I choose Amsterdam and, and then I fell in love and I didn't, I, I wouldn't call it professional volleyball. It was, it was high level. It was the, the highest or the, the, just below the highest level I would train three, four, five times a week. I would love it. I would love the, the social cohesion and structure and the, the drum that that would give you because you had like your whole, in, in Holland, what you have, you have um, big gyms and then by the gym is usually a, um, a cafeteria or a, like a, a bar. And then Thursday night, you would go to the bar after, after training and you would have a drink and there was a, heavy, heavy social aspect with that. So that, that was all throughout my study. And then even I, I went traveling in Latin America a few times in that period as well. And, and I studied and I, I moved to, after two years in, in, in the, at the German university, it was in Dortmund. I moved to, uh, to Amsterdam and, oh man, I fell in love with that city. And it, I mean, it's a, it's a construction later on looking back but i i love the the life on the bike people were so you, you the big difference be, between german and dutch and i i'm everything i see i say i, I mean that positively german are engineers and they're the deep thinkers they're, they're all the big philosopher from the 19th century come from germany and they're deep and they're the word problem comes back a lot and there's some heavy thinking there and and, and it's also engineering. So solutions have to be 180%. And if that's not yet the case, you'll hear that. And then you have the Dutch who've been traders and who have to fight the water together and who are much more consensus as opposed to power driven in their culture. 
and also much more opportunistic. Like, oh, you know what? This is maybe not 180%, but it's a solution that works. Let's go with that. And that makes people, so you, you, have, the, you have a formal you in German and in Dutch and the informal you. And in Holland, everybody will use the informal you, even if you're older or whatever. In Germany, you will use the formal you, even if you have worked together for 20 years. And it brings power distance. It brings, it brings distance. So um, that it, it, hey, and can you imagine? It's interesting, but my community background and the freedom and the, the, the consensus and the more equality, it came back in the, in the Dutch culture more. So maybe, and it's hypothesizing, I, I mean, I don't know, but looking back, maybe that is what, what made me fall in love with that country. And also with the Dutch men. I only had Dutch men once I moved there. <laughs> mm you're gonna have to forgive me but as uh knows and i'll let the listener knows but when you hang out with a bunch of organizational psychologists we're always processing something and i'm I'm listening to this just wonderful description of um, an eventful youth and the, the one thing i wanted to just circle back on is i thought about sport and in sport you were never an outsider Like the uniform's the same, right? Everyone's equal because it's, it's, it's based yeah. on athleticism. Yeah. And I, that just clicked in me. And I thought, you know, does that resonate with you of an appeal where you're spending a lot of your time feeling different, but when you're playing volleyball, you're not different at all. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and I still have that when I, uh, when I, I moved and I'm, I'm a big hot yoga lover. Like it needs to be powerful because otherwise my brain goes all over the place. Um, it's, it's a universal language. And I see that in my boys. So they move to a new city. And, and of course, the first thing we do is what, what soccer club are we going to? Okay. And then we find the soccer club and then they come there and it's the beginning of the practice. And they're like, they're standing there like a little bit like this. I don't know anybody yet. And boom, the moment the practice starts, the universal language is on the connection is there. We're all equal. So I, I would say even without that, that feeling of feeling different it's it has an amazing effect on human beings it's a universal language you've been very patient and i appreciate that um let's get to the heart of kind of the podcast here which is what is culture i would say culture is the sum of our behaviors And another definition that I use a lot when I come into organizations, culture is the behavior of leaders. And the first leaders that we met are our parents. Ding, the ding, first ding. leaders that we meet are our parents. And, and they, they, we have, I would even say we have a personal culture, which is our set of values and principles. And it's a lot of that is under the, under, in, under the water in the iceberg. It's, it's subconscious and, And life is about going under the water and, and discovering what drives us and what makes us happy and what costs us energy. And the moment we understand more of that, I also think that we can't be conscious of everything. So it, it's a constant flow of being conscious about something but also forgetting something and then remembering something you know my my love for words remember in all languages souvenir uh, 
recordar um, o acordar um, it all means going back inside and knowing something getting to remembering like literally becoming a member of something that you knew already but that you have forgotten because we can't be aware so the iceberg will always be 10% above the water and 90% under the water and so I think we have a personal culture which is the sum of our values and principles and drives us what makes us happy what gives us energy and what also does the opposite we have family cultures we have relate like the culture in your relationship with your loved one cultures some people never shout at each other some people do have conflict i i celebrate the conflict with my husband and i had to teach him because he does he he wants harmony and he doesn't like conflict but i i believe so we had different values in that one i believe that sometimes friction is good and and yes it shouldn't be yelling and hitting I, i'm i'm okay but but like having different opinions and the emotions that goes with that is okay. So, so that's an example of culture in a relationship. And I think even though I've always find that I find it such a complex concept, an organizational culture, or like what you do a, a team, a sports team culture. And, and one thing that I know for sure, the behavior of leaders, the behavior of people with formal authority or the behavior of the people that are very highly valued in a community has a stronger impact on culture. Every, everybody has an impact on culture, but I think people with, with power, regardless of the, the source of power, have a higher impact on culture. And what is their impact? I would say it is mainly what they do and what they communicate by what they do. So if you if one of the values in a culture is we listen to each other, but, but people keep looking on the iPhone when they, when they have conversations with each other, I, I would say that communicates more. Or if I have a, have a big issue and um, you, you know that as the person with power and, and you, you don't, you don't come back to it. You don't ask, ask me for it. I, I might feel something about that. And it, it's very dependent on individuals what they feel about what. Um, but I find I find corporate culture, organizational culture, very complex thing because it's not it's not only one thing. There's subcultures, and there can be one individual brings a change in culture, even if it's minor. But if if we are an organization of a hundred people and there's ten new people coming. You, there is new culture coming into the organization because there's new behavior. And my definition of culture is the sum of our behaviors. Yeah. You know, I've kind of had an epiphany about culture lately and, and worked out a new definition for me, but a large part of that is this idea of bounded systems that a culture has to exist within a bounded system and, and bounded meaning time, space, and activity. I don't see where you could have it without, but it, it also, what I hear from you is the, this idea of subcultures, the way groups are bounded is almost limitless. Um, how you define activity, time and space, you know, it could be, I'm, I'm sitting at a lunch table and someone sits down. That is a bounded system. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, or it could be a conference room of 300 people. So I, I get that. And I, I, I really appreciate and applaud that definition. 
I'm wondering as someone who is going into organizations to fix how you feel or experience that culture as an outsider. So one, one of my principles is to, um, to postpone my judgments about culture and also about good or bad. So, and, and our perception works, works through differences. So we perceive what is different from our own values and principles. And if you, I mean, we've all, like your listeners have had that as well. If you start a new job, you, your, your perception is sharp. You just see, you notice, oh, this is totally different. People invite me to their, to their lunch table or people just sit with me or people just come to me and say, hey, how are you? I'm Matthew. Just wanted to introduce myself. I've seen you running around and that nobody would have done that at my previous company. So we're super open in the beginning because everything is fresh and I call it the magic of beginnings. Um, we see with fresh eyes. Uh, so I try to postpone my judgment when I come in. And of course, at a certain point, I do notice, is it a relationship-oriented culture? Is it a, like where people love to work with each other? And if 10 people tell you, I just love my colleagues and I love to work with them, then you know, that is an element of the culture. Or is it a more, more result-oriented culture where people mainly are concerned about how do they get their their sales numbers or like and and then you have sales organizations are different than accounting uh, um, departments so that's where the subcultures come in um i i just i try to to really open my paradigms my perceptions my antennas and sniff in everything and then at a certain point in the beginning i'm really I'm like, and I never take NS1, one voice for the truth. It's a part of the puzzle. It's a relevant part of the puzzle. I love hearing voices. And I always, like if a CEO tells me I need this or you need to help me to do that or an HR person says we need inspirational leadership or I'm like, okay, what do you mean by it? And, and how much of it is there already? Also, that's another of my, you said, uh, you come into organizations and you fix culture. I like I'm triggered by the word fix because I just I just want to discover and uncover and maybe from a, a, a plate of wild spaghetti just understand the elements of that wild spaghetti so that that you could add or maybe strengthen elements on that wild plate of spaghetti which we call culture. I think everything is there already but some stuff gets lost, like the remembering thing and, and needs to be reinforced. And also, if you look at the people in an organization, there's so much diversity and so much uniqueness. And if you, if you pull out the right people with the right strength, you can, you can build stuff from what is there already. And then you don't necessarily need to fix, but just strengthen or dampen or, make explicit stuff like that so thank you for that feedback and for the <laughs> listener um you're exactly right i, I don't think uh a, a consultant or an organizational psychologist going into a system is there to fix it i was trying to communicate i think there's a, a perception right that people are yeah. bringing you yeah. in to quote unquote fix totally totally so something yeah do you think culture is something an organization thinks about or feels? 
cognitive or emotional or something else? Um, so I, I think again, the fish in the water culture is like the water. It's, um, it, and it influences feelings. It influences interactions. It, and, and through the interactions, it influences what people feel and think and how they act, thinking, feeling, and behavior. Um, and I think on average organizations and especially the people in power do not spend enough time on on creating awareness on how they influence culture. I mean, we spend time on what's, uh, what should be our profitable growth for the, the coming year and what are our strategic priorities, but whoever spends time on what do we culturally as an executive team or as a leadership team or as a management team, what do we spend energy, attention uh, on? I, I rarely meet teams to do that, even though I think it's so important. What do I praise? How do I, how do I bring that extra voice that I would like to add into our culture into the room? Um, who, what questions am I asking? So when I, one of the things that I, for me, the culture is the how. Strategy is what, the why and the what, and culture is how do we deal with each other. So one of the things that I often do with CEOs or or someone who made a strategy, I say, okay, so what do you what do you want your salespeople to do differently in line with that strategy? What questions do you want them to ask? I rarely get an answer to in the first place. We, then some thinking needs to be done and then I get the answer. And the same is true for how, like, what are you going to do differently? How, which, which talent do you want to give a, like more of a platform? What questions, what are you going to praise more than before? And, and they have never thought of, okay, that strategy, it's about the organization. It's not about me. Well, if it doesn't have an impact on how I behave, it's how is it going to make a difference? And so, I, mean, I could talk about this for hours. It's, it's, well, why don't you think there is a greater awareness? Either what is not being said or what is preventing that from being understood? It's, I, it's the fish in the water that keeps coming back because it's, given it's something that we're not trained you know nobody none of us had mindfulness or consciousness or what are my value what is my purpose training at school i think we should do that eight four five six seven what is your voice what do you want to bring into the world when do you get mad and why and and what in you is the script that makes you mad about that stuff like that it's i would say we're not very trained in the language of behavior values what triggers me yeah yeah it almost becomes like a russian nesting doll of this idea of culture on culture on culture which is school is a culture and business school is a culture oh yeah and business school is operating within its own paradigm of sense making and you know, if we're just going to talk in generalities, a large portion of that is nothing to do with people. It's about productivity. It's about using the machine as a metaphor for an organization. Well, a machine doesn't have feelings, right? It just the copier just copies. You're right. Yeah. But, but in this complexity, this world of complexity that we live in, it is so much more about humans. I mean, and I think you agree with that. 
Yeah. And yet there's almost this lack of, no, it's not almost, there is a lack of language, a lack yeah. of understanding, a lack of being able to contextualize the human as the element of an organization. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's, it's a lack of all of that. And it's also a lack of acceptance that working with humans. I mean, if you look at uh, Taylor, Taylor Rizma in, in, um, in management, it was like a human is like a machine. I tell you what you do and you do it. And that's where we come from. And, and the military is the same and all of our, our leadership and, and culture and management knowledge is it, its origins are in the military. And, and the idea there was, I tell you and you do, and you are not to question and you're not to be difficult and you're not to feel just you. So we are, I would say we are Mr. Paradigms talking to me we're in a paradigm shift. We're in the, and Brené Brown is a great example of bringing the messiness of us humans to the table and bringing a language to the table. But there, there's been, um, Marshall uh, Rosenberg has done a long time ago. He started with nonviolent communication, but there's a lot of movements. Byron Katie, I would say, is another movement that help us to embrace humans and their emotion and, and not be afraid of them and making them part of it. And the moment we do that, we can speed up. But if we suppress it, we cannot. They're always like breaking us down and slowing us down. So are emotions the fuel? Emotional intelligence? So if, well, emotions are definitely a big fuel if you look at brain science. I mean, our, our emotions fire faster than our thinking if you, if you look at how it works in the brain. And, and we... Like I have, I've coached so many people say I'm, I'm rational. I don't want to take my decisions based on emotions. Well, I have news for you. We can't take any decisions without emotions. If the, the emotional part of the brain is like it's dis disabled, we can't take the, the easiest decision. We can't take them anymore. So we need emotions. And I also think emotions is what makes us human and, and our, our customers that we want to serve also have emotions, whether it is a product that we want to bring into the market for different types of people. And we, we, I would say everything. Yeah. Emotions is fuel. I mean, I also love facts and I love thoughts and rational thought, but I think it's just a given that without emotions, nothing is going to happen or change. So what would you tell a leader who approaches you, leader of business, leader of sports, leader, I mean, whatever, church, military, and they say to you, Kat, we have a quote unquote bad culture. What's, what's the first thing you say? I would say, I would smile and I would say, okay, tell me more, what is bad? And I would just discover with him. And then at a certain point, I would ask, and you know, nothing is only bad. What's good about your culture? Oh, and why is that important to know what's good? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I believe that even the worst, the worst of the worst and the baddest of the baddest have something good in them. And it's, it's I, I, you and I, we, we both have that strength-based or that potential-based approach. Your, your excellence is based on 
on your strength. So if, if you had made me an accountant or a tax, uh, a tax advisor, I'm not good with details. I, I really have to make an effort. And it's some details I am good with, but on average, I'm, and I, I, I'm not passionate about the next tax rule. Or So I, I have been able to become really good at what I do because of, build, of building on my strength. And, and I think any change needs to respect and value and honor what is good in the current system. So for any leaders, what Kat is talking about is an intervention strategy called appreciative inquiry, which is just this, which is having conversations about what's good. And the idea there is, you know, problem solving can be epidemic and it can really bog down a system in analysis, but simply changing that conversation and the focus of an organization towards one of appreciating the positives literally does change the conversation. And Kat's very good at that, as you can hear. Um, I have, you know, we're, we're close to the end and I, I want to be very respectful of your time. And I have some quick hit questions for you. Um, are you ready? I'm going to spike the ball and you're going you're gonna to bump it. Um, what are you curious about? Oh, do you mean me? There's so many things. Yes, you. But how we're going, how we as humans are, go, are we going to save the planet? Mm. I'm curious about that. I'm curious about what my kids want to bring into the world. I'm curious about how, uh, how my how my life is going to look like and when I'm old and 80, I am, I'm curious about every human being I meet. I'm curious about user instructions of human, human beings. I'm curious on so many levels. What's something you failed at? Um, oh, I mean, so many things. And then I'm, I'm called the queen of reframe in my, I'm, I'm reframing those. And then I forget like the learning in my MBA, I forget. So, oh man, I, I fail. I fail at so many things. I would say I failed at making my first relationship work. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, broke, I broke a heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I failed, I failed. And that's maybe the most painful one at some elements of my oldest son, uh, son's boundary setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm suffering from that failure still. It's <laughs> hard. Oh, such a mirror. What do you wish all leaders knew about culture? It starts with you. Be the change. Be the change you want to see in the world. Don't ask for something. Just do it. Be it. You can bring so much. What do you wish all followers knew about culture? Be the change you want to see in the world. You can make a difference. You can make a difference every day. What is the next evolution of you? being the change I want to see in the world. <laughs> I would say it's, um, 
it's it's an even so so i always see my kids around for the next six to seven years and after that i would say i'm i'm spreading out my wings and want to make an even bigger footprint and i i want to do it tomorrow and today but i also really want to preserve and i don't want to jet around the world every week i'm fine with once a month yeah but and spread my wings and 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 bring a collaborative egalitarian constructive inspirational disciplined high performance type of leadership into the world a leadership that creates leaders mm. these are fill in the blank questions and and i'm going to frame this as you as a consultant working with a company could be could be that could also be outside could be i'm i'm open okay i, I just want to frame you as um the agent here uh, yeah. because i tend to ask these questions to coaches which have a you know, an innate relationship to their environment, Peace. but I'm going to, I'm talking to you as a coach, basically, let's put it that way. Um, the first step in creating an intentional culture is. Defining visible behaviors, hmm. visible desired behaviors. The culture that you would try to create in a company is. based on potential, looking for continuous improvement, accepting the, the uniqueness of human beings, or in other words, diversity. You will know that you've created that culture when? Everybody makes efforts to continuously improve, embrace diversity, and create results. Is there anything I should have asked you, but I didn't? Hey, I really, really, I think this was almost like, it's coaching therapy, it made me think. And what I really appreciated is how you are able to summarize and to, to use your yourself and your intuition to grab some of the things that I'm saying, which probably are, pretty long sometimes and take those out and elaborate further on them and make me think about them. It's very, that's, and that's coaching for me. So you just saw her gift and that is, she just made me feel really great. She is the, the master of that. So thank you for those kind words. I want to thank you. I adore you. I think the world of you, um, where can people find out more information about what you do and how to you get in contact with you? www.inspirationanddiscipline.com and I also uh, I am on LinkedIn uh, Katarina Schmidt and then Inspiration and Discipline just as you write it you'll uh, you'll find me there's everything that leads you to my telephone or email and I will also link to all that stuff in the uh, in the podcast so Kat thank you so much likewise Matthew thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of the Performance Rising Podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can find all the information about the podcast at performancerising.org. 
And be sure to check out the Instagram page at performance underscore rising.